Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith and I have the pleasure today of introducing Assistant Professor Gregory Mitchell, author of Tourist Attractions, Performing Race and Masculinity in Brazil's Sexual Economy. Moving through the saunas of Rio de Janeiro to the Amazonian eco-resorts in Manaus and the candomblé religious ceremonies of the Afro-Brazilian city of Bahia, Mitchell's intersectional analysis of the performance of masculinity explores sex as an epistemology, a way of knowing, capturing the individual experiences and identities of male sex workers and their transnational clients. The ethnography of tourist attractions delves into the complex and refractive affective flows that attempt to make desire legible across culture, race and sexuality. In proposing that sex work be framed as a form of performative labour, Tourist Attractions makes robust contributions to the ideas of effective labour, queer kinship, authenticity and cultural memory, among many others. Thank you, Greg, so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I think that we'll start the interview off by getting an introduction to your scholarly journey and how that led to tourist attractions, possibly even as well delving into the methodologies that you use to create tourist attractions as well. Sure. So I think it's important to say at the outset that I never set out to study sex workers um, per se, uh, or uh, there was this was not born out of a desire to kind of go find an exotic other that I was going to go and, and, you know, write about Mm -hmm. the project actually began for me as a desire to explore the idea of gay consumerism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, I had grown up in a rural part of the U S in the state of Illinois, in the cornfields and trailer parks and was the first in my family to go to college and was sort of desperate to get into uh, you know, cosmopolitan city life. And uh, eventually after I I uh, graduated from college, I ran away, like so many young queers before, to, mm-hmm. the, uh, to the nearest city, which for me was Chicago. And I imagined it was going to be like this great queer utopia, right? Like it was going to be radical and... and <laughs> And and it was not. It was, you know, very gentrified and very middle class and, you know, a little uh, racist uh, mm-hmm. or sometimes more than a little racist. And uh, as I began a career in public policy and realized that, that I was, you know, making a salary and uh, becoming one of those middle class, uh, you know, gay consumers <laughs> living in the gay neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I hated this and I wanted to go back to school. And so I, I left um, that career in public policy and went to the University of Chicago and began to study anthropology. And I said, well, I want to study this phenomenon of, of gay consumerism because somehow gays went from being this reviled consumer demographic that no one wanted associated mm-hmm. with their brand. Uh, I mentioned 
you know, airlines burning blankets and pillows of gay passengers, and then, you know, almost on a dime, turning around and hiring full-time liaisons to the gay community because mm-hmm. of this idea gays are traveling and they have dual income and no kids. And of course we know that's not true. That doesn't represent, um, you know, the experiences of certainly lesbians and trans people and many queer people of color, but this Mm -hmm. small segment of white gay men comes to stand in. And so I said, well, I want to write a critique of this and learn about this. And so I began to look into gay tourism and my advisor said, well, where do the gays go? And I said, I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) And so I asked, you know, Google, right, as one does. Yes. And I realized, oh, it, okay, Mykonos, wherever that is, Ibiza, wherever that is, <laughs> and Rio de Janeiro. And, you know, my advisor said, Greg, no one is ever going to give you money or, or grants or a job to go study gay men partying in Mykonos and Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but maybe Rio de Janeiro. Um and so he said, go down there for a summer, start taking Portuguese classes, start talking to these tourists and find out why they're going there. How did this destination become, uh, you know, this top travel destination? Are uh-huh. there advertising campaigns? Is the government doing it? And uh, long story short, well, I suppose it's, it's too late for, for that, but I, I got there and I looked around and I realized that there were all of these, you know, gringos, these foreign men. Um, with these beautiful Brazilian guys on their arms. And I mm-hmm. went, oh, oh, I know what this is. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with, you know, some advertising campaign or a marketing, um, you know, focus group. Uh, and so that was the, the birth of it. And as I began to talk to those other tourists and eventually as my Portuguese got better to talk to the, the men who are known as Garotos Programa or, or Rent Boys, mm-hmm. um, literally program boys. I began to become fascinated by the comparing their perspectives about how was each side of this commercial exchange making sense of the relationship of uh, questions of race and desire and nationality and and how were they managing to make those ideas that they had intelligible across cultural differences and that's where um, I really had to to turn to the idea of performance um, of racialized masculinity. Um, and, and that is, is essentially where the project came from. I'm going to pick one word out there just at the end of that, which was exchange, because I think that the first chapter, we not only have the literal exchange between um, two men that you were speaking with, both of whom worked in a sauna, a space that I will get you to explain later on to the <laughs> listeners, um, but there's this exchange that you're observing between two men, and, and they discuss this double life that they've created by lying to their mothers about their job, but also this duality experienced as a heterosexual man navigating the desires of a homosexual client, another dynamic I'll get you to explain too. Um, They talk about how their experiences of embodying what they perceive to be a viable masculinity, both commercially and sexually, um, everything from how they maintain an erection to how they please a client who craves affection. Um, And this is the chapter that really sets up these two core concepts of effect, with an A, and labor, and how these shape that performance of masculinity. I think using the word exchange and, and this space of the sauna, as well as this conversation between these two gentlemen, 
Would you be able to explain to us this idea of performative labour as it plays out in the social choreography of a sauna and then possibly talk to us about how you relate that to culturally specific effects in that transcultural uh, part of the performance? Sure. Um, so I think we've become, at least in, in certain progressive circles, um, used to the idea of sex work. Right. The, the notion that there is sexual labor, Marxist feminists have given us that that framework. Carol Lee, you know, coined that that phrase in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we forget sometimes that that actually carries a lot of rhetorical uh, importance. Right. There's an argument embedded in that term, which is that um, as with all forms of, of labor, if there is exploitation, um, then it can be addressed through a labor rights framework. Right. As opposed to, you know, a missionary or, you know, rescue organizations or, you know, white savior complex or, or whatever. Yeah. And so for me, fundamentally, I came into this looking at these exchanges. Right. And the the men on both sides were always very clear about, you know, that, that there was a, a give and take. Right. So it is. Um, you know, money is is being exchanged, although sometimes that exchange is actually obscured, which was part of what was fascinating to me, because in the sauna, which is a, essentially a gay bathhouse with brothel-style male prostitution, okay. um, there is uh, a, a sense that um, you know what you're getting into. You're exchanging a certain amount of money for a certain amount of, uh, you know, specific sexual activities in a specific amount of time. Mm-hmm. But they also have relationships outside the saunas. They're escorting. There are um, all sorts of complicated situations in which the the gringo or the client, because, of course, Brazilians do this too. I was most interested in, in the foreign um, uh, tourist aspect of it, but uh, it happens with Brazilians as well, where they you know want to make a boyfriend out of uh, some guy that they've fallen for who is a sex worker, and yeah. so they... Uh, give money, but they frame it as a gift, right, um, to their to their friend. Um, and that also helps to reduce the possibility of stigma for uh, male sex workers, the garotos, many of whom identify as heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So if they get to frame this as... Um, as as receiving these these gifts, then uh, you know it's sort of um, able to rationalize or justify what it is that that they're they're doing and not take on um, you know what feminist theorists have talked about is the horror stigma, right? Okay. So they don't have to think of themselves as uh, prostituting themselves if they can you know reconceptualize the exchange. Mm-hmm. So. I like the idea of the exchange precisely because it's very flexible and you can see that sometimes the, the, the sexual economy is working in very informal ways and sometimes very formal ways. Um, but what's not captured by the term sex work is um, all of the other kinds of labor that go into that. And so uh, sociologists have talked a lot about emotional labor, uh, in particularly gendered uh, forms of, of um emotional labor, uh, very famously, right, um, th- uh, feminized professions like airline attendants or service industry personnel. Um, there is a lot of emotional labor that is expected, particularly of, of those kinds of professions. Mm-hmm. But then more recently, people coming at it more from queer theory and literary theory began to talk about um, affective labor uh, and to talk about um, 
uh, affect as being something that's a little more different than emotion, right? Mm -hmm. They're thinking of these as these very pre-individual, pre-conscious uh, responses that are kind of welling up from within, you know, one's being. And it's not the language of psychology. It's not the language of emotion. Um, and part Part of, part of me was really reluctant to even delve into affect theory with this project. I spent years during my PhD thinking, oh, thank God, I don't have to like contend with that math. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then eventually I realized, oh, shit, I'm going to have to like, compare, you know, the performative and the affective. Like, where are they overlapping? When are they separate? Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm going to actually have to delve into this. And so a lot of the book becomes about thinking about those intersections because uh, for example when the men are talking about oh there's a client but he you know he he wants me to take this really forceful macho approach you know yeah. i have to manufacture this they call it pegada which is very hard to translate but mm -hmm. uh, basically swagger right and and they'll say i think the line is something in that exchange you were you were asking me about the conversation is something like oh some of these you know gay men go crazy for pegada they're like women they need this really forceful macho approach. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the affective labor is that if they want to draw desire, right, the affective desire out of, get that response from a client, then they have to manufacture a certain kind of affective state in themselves, yep. which is through the performative, right, mm -hmm. through the realm of the performative, which is they have to, you know, tap into their cultural repertoire of available masculinities and come up with this swaggering Latin macho uh, you know, straight persona that, you know, is, is going to make this particular client, you know, weak in the knees. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they, their ability to make money and to be very clear, that also means their ability very often to feed themselves and their families and take care of their, their, you know, ailing mothers and whatever comes down to their ability to have competency in, in performing those masculinities. And so it's um, very high stakes. Performative labor is, is absolutely a very high stakes uh, endeavor. Yeah. So the intersections between the performative and the effective at the outset are complex. And then you delve deeper and make it more complex, which I'm sure was <laughs> fun in and of itself for you. But chapter two we really start to see that the performative and the effective also take on different elements when we bring in race. Mm -hmm. And we are introduced to a character, to an individual, um, Lutero, who speaks of his black masculinity. Um, and you note how this somewhat limits his performance because he isn't able to muster the same effects that are associated with whiteness. Um, so this chapter is titled Typecasting and brings in that racialization of performance, um, but also the uh, expectations and ideals that um, the gringos, the, the foreign tourists, bring to these exchanges as well. I'm wondering if you'd be able to uh, speak, speak us through the translation of race across these cultures and the way that it plays in that performative and effective exchange, particularly... Um, with terms such as agency and fetishization that this chapter deals with? Mm -hmm. So let me take this in a, a somewhat circuitous fashion. Okay. Uh, in, in that I think it's important to kind of think about how uh, affect theory and performance theory 
have uh, been able to take up the question of race or sometimes have failed to take up um, questions of race. Part of my frustration with affect theory, and I hope I don't offend the affect theorists out there listening, but so much of that was coming from literary theory and people who didn't necessarily always have to deal with ethnographic data and, you know, the kind of, of real lived experiences in, in the moment, right? Dealing with these flesh and blood people sitting before them in, you know, an interview, for example. And there's a strain of literary theory and queer theory um, that didn't do a very good job with questions of race or racialization. Um, in, in fact, the body itself kind of becomes so ephemeral in some of that theory. There are affects bouncing around the room or bodies become, you know, these kind of congealed affects. And, you know, it's as if the body barely exists anymore uh, in, in some instances. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain moment, um, I feel like queer of color uh, critique and queer of color uh, critics, uh, largely scholars of color, really begin to take affect theory and, and make it do the work of critical race theory in really important ways. And they don't let the body drop out in the same way. So you have people like Jose Munoz, uh, who has a, a wonderful essay, Feeling Brown, where he talks about race as a kind of, of affect, right? Yeah. Um, and he talks about whiteness as sort of a depletion of affect. And, and, uh, and so people start to really get better about thinking about affect and performance in ways that allow the racialized body to still exist. And so for me, that was kind of the vein that I wanted to work in. And certainly my um, advisors at, at Northwestern when I was in grad school, E. Patrick Johnson was my um, um, was my uh, PhD supervisor, and he, you know, <laughs> uh, the, edited the book Black Queer Studies and wrote, you know, um, uh, many, many uh, books and articles on, on queer of color critiques. So mm-hmm. I was trying to work within that vein of scholarship. And so where that led me in, in the case of, for example, trying to interpret this interview and this, this exchange that I had with this man um, who I called Lutero in the book, who is a very dark-skinned Afro-Brazilian man. And in Rio, the, the tourists, the clients in general, are not there for dark-skinned um, black men. They are there right. for this kind of idea of, you know, this brown um, or, or light-skinned Latino um, man, maybe mixed race, um, but, but certainly not dark-skinned Afro-Brazilian men. That's different up in Bahia, and maybe we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in Rio, if somebody like Lutero was going to get a client, very often it's a client who specifically has a fetish for dark-skinned black men. Okay. And... Um, and certainly that was his experience. Um, and so he was, he was very frustrated with that because on the one hand, he felt, uh, objectified and fetishized, um, for that. And he also felt discriminated against because, you know, he would approach, uh, clients and a lot of them would just say that they weren't interested, um, uh, in, in him, um, because he was black. And so there, there is a lot of, racism um and people think of course that racialized desire is uh well i shouldn't say people who know people feel all sorts of ways about racialized desire um but part of that chapter uh is for me was why are all of these clients so uncomfortable talking about 
their racialized desire? Right. Why do they frame it as being about type instead? They'll say, oh, no, no, like, I don't think about race. I'm just naturally drawn to a particular type. And they'll talk about type as if it's race neutral when clearly it's not. You yeah. know, they'll, they'll talk about, uh, you know, hair color or eye color. Well, of course, those things are, are racialized. But they're very uncomfortable with the idea that their desire is actually um, race based, even though I would argue uh, that it's not necessarily um, a bad thing. And in fact, all desire is racialized. Um, from, from a queer theory perspective, what sexual exchange is free of the baggage of centuries of colonialism and white supremacy and racial domination? Mm-hmm. The fact that you're not thinking about that in that moment doesn't mean that we're not situated within that historical and political context. So, uh, you know, the... the um, I think it was Robert Reed Farr, who I think I quote at the start of that chapter, who says, you know, uh, something to the effect of the time has come to, or or, uh, we have to think when we fuck, right? And so the idea that that acknowledging the role of race in racialized desires is very important. So I wanted to capture that in that chapter, simultaneously to look at the question of race and racial fetishization, but also to really listen to the men who would yeah. talk about playing with that because they would say, oh, I, um, yeah, they desire me because of my race, but I make them desire me yes. because of my because they know how to how to work those stereotypes. Yes, but they view it as a very agentive thing where they are wrapping these gringos around their finger and taking them for everything they've got. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a for them they would frame it as resistance. And and there's a telling moment where I stumbled into it where where I, you know, would say in the interview, I said, ah, you know, famous Blarasson, like is there there's exploitation. Assuming that they would understand that question to mean, are you exploited? And they would always say, Oh yeah, there's so much exploitation. I exploit these these clients so much. <laughs> And after the first time, I realized, oh, I think I should ask this question every time, and I should always ask it in that way. Yeah. And every single one of them read the question in that way. So certainly there's there's exploitation, and you know, Lutero's case was not a happy one um, in terms of his experience of prejudice and, and um, fetishization, mm-hmm. but there is also these very powerful moments where the men absolutely claim agency over it and turn it um, to their advantage and would be very offended, um, you know, by some academic coming along and telling them that, you know, they're, they're exploited in this uh, situation in that kind of, you know, outright way. Yeah. I, well, I hope you don't mind if I actually jump us to chapters five and six, um, the <laughs> chapter about eco-sex and the black sexual pilgrimage to Bahia, pilgrimage to Bahia, because I think what I'd love to, um, expand upon what you've just speaking about then is this idea of thinking when we fuck. And I think that what chapter five and six do is they take that thinking, sorry, is what you do in chapter five and six is you take the idea of thinking and also incorporate memories and the ways in which cultural memories can manifest in these particular exchanges. And by exchange, I not only mean in the sexual economy, but also in the, in the tourist economy. So the, the act of going to Brazil for a particular experience. And I think I'll start with um, with Chapter 5, where 
we're we're taken to um, the city of Manaus and this desire for tourists to have an authentic experience with the indigenous. And you uncover these uh, uh, instances of eroticizing the other and bring up these uh, debates about bounded authenticity and these attempts to manufacture or, or to simulate uh, desire, pleasure, um, but also for the tourist point of view to create these inauthentic memories of uh, being part of the natural and the environmental. I'm wondering if you could um, explain to us the way that the body becomes a metonym for something greater in, in these experiences for the, for the eco-sex tourism industry. Sure. So I, I should probably begin this response by by making sure that I'm I'm forthright in saying that there is not as much sex tourism, particularly gay sex tourism, uh, up in in the Amazon. Um, a, a few people have have. Um, Express. I don't know about in, incredulity. Certainly not about you know the the um, the validity of the work itself. But they say really like does it warrant a whole chapter on you know um, this connection between sexuality and ecotourism? Like is there enough of an industry there that it justifies including it? And part of why I wanted to include it is that in Brazil. Um, all of the scholarship on on race and all of the kind of mythologies that Brazilians themselves will will um, refer to when they talk about race refers to this racial triumvirate that Brazil is a racial democracy that is built on um, the figure of the Indian, the white man, and the black man, and all of their many different racial categories and ideas stem out of various permutations and combinations of, of this triumvirate. And so it's very, very hard to write a book about race in Brazil um, in a serious way unless you contend with the question of the indigenous. Mm -hmm. And so that was why I wanted to include it, not because, you know, that there are, you know, the thousands of, of gay tourists up there that, you know, there are in, in Rio. Um, but it was nonetheless important to me to do that, even though it was, was a, a smaller sample. So what I wanted to do there and I sort of stumbled into it because it, it wasn't until I was walking around up there and somebody propositioned me to to go on some you know eco tour mm -hmm. um and and I said no and then he said well do you want to buy Indian pussy and I was like what you know I was interpolated right I was being hailed as both a uh a, first an eco tourist and then a sex tourist right mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, okay, well, uh, maybe I should explore this further. And then I began to see that there are actually instances of kind of packaged heterosexual sex tourism. But then I said, well, where, is, where are the gays here? Like, what is their relationship to the homoerotic and, and, and this question of authenticity? And I realized uh, that, you know, the, the gay, the, there are these ridiculous eco-resorts, one in particular, which is like a Disneyland, you know, uh, it, crazy simulacrum of like what you imagine the rainforest to be built in the actual rainforest. It's got a landing pad for aliens, like, like honestly, 
the millionaire billionaire who who built it really believed that aliens were going to land and so there's still a landing pad there the the conservation center was just a place for for golf carts to reside not that there's a golf course but they ride the golf carts all around through the jungle on <laughs> these trails so it's just a ridiculous ridiculous place um but it's a huge money maker and uh and so I realized, though, like they had just had this big gay party and they had imported these gay go-go boys to come in from Manaus and took them by boat out there for this big gay pride thing. Um, one of the big tour companies in town is run by a gay um, uh, 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 owner. Uh, so, so there was enough there that I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so then the more I would kind of talk to tourists and visit the gay saunas and there was an organization there devoted to um, – uh, male sex, or, uh, sex workers um, uh, called Garotes da Noite or, or Boys of the Night. And and so I said, well, there is enough here that I really want to explore this. And what I realized was that the tourists, not only the gays, but, but all of the eco-tourists in general, had this idea that they wanted to see the rainforest like before it was gone or they wanted to have this very authentic experience. So they wanted to take pictures of Indians, but the Indians had to be naked. Because if the Indians had, you know, a Coca-Cola T-shirt, then like they weren't worth photographing or putting, you know, on Facebook. And so they would take all these photos. I actually had a file folder at one point um, on my laptop called my my naked Indian friend and me, where I was just collecting all these photos, which, of course, for copyright reasons, I couldn't use, mm -hmm. where tourists were putting all these things on Flickr and Tumblr and whatever of photographing themselves with naked indigenous people. Oh, um, my God. And, right? and and yet they imagine in retrospect that this experience is somehow beneficial to the environment, right? That they went to the Amazon, they did the ecotourism and the ecotourist industry, um, you know, the, the kind of mainstream part. There is a really good, valuable section of the ecotourism industry that I think is doing phenomenal work. But a lot of it, and I would even say perhaps the majority of it, is peddling in this idea of authenticity and selling tourists on this idea that somehow if you come and have these experiences, uh, quote unquote, authentic experiences that, that somehow, um, you know, you're saving the rainforest and it's, it's, it's a ridiculous proposition, but I wanted to argue in that chapter that there's an erotic element that is undergirding a lot of those ideas of authenticity, yeah. um, the kind of titillation of it. And I think that that has not really been fully examined or explored by scholars other than a handful of uh, you know feminist feminist um, you know uh, film theorists and so on Trin Minh Ha and, and and those sorts of people who have you know really thought about the kind of ethnographic gaze that happens um, gaze G A Z E um, uh, there uh, and and so at any rate that was why I became interested in this idea of um, kind of misremembering your tourist experience right. as somehow being positive and helpful. And I think, you know, maybe an even better example of that outside of Brazil right now is Cuba, right? Think of all the people who are rushing madly. Um, well, perhaps <laughs> not in Australia, but in the U.S. now that the embargo is up. Um, yeah. uh, all these people want to rush in there and it's like, oh, I have to see it while it's still authentic. Right. As if uh -huh. uh, Cuban people are trapped in amber and, you know, as if they wouldn't still be authentically Cuban, you know, um, uh, you know, come come next month or whatever. So the idea, though, that somehow your tourism is like good for the people being toured yep. um, is is a, a problematic notion that I think is really rooted in, in colonial narratives and ideas of travel. I think that that idea of um, 
that the travel that the travel is some kind of you know benevolent force that we're able to um, enact upon another country is dealt with in um, one of your chapters. You look at the relationship between sexual tourism, economic processes, and civil rights. And at the outset, it seems conceptually rich, almost to the point of disorienting. But the way you put it really makes you question um, the way in which we impose our missionary somewhat perspective um, on the way that tourism can enlighten people or can give us some kind of authentic experience. And you're asking this question as to why does the tourist travel and the idea that gay travel is good for gays globally and that this homosexual client can enlighten the heterosexual prostitute on that micro level and then there are macro changes. Um, You have an interview subject who notes that the laundromat was waving a rainbow flag and he says that gay tourism has made this community far more gay inclusive. Um, So I'm wondering if you can speak about that, these culturally inflected ideas of sexuality and the way in which almost the white saviour can come in and give these enlightened values to to the other, I suppose. Yeah, so that that was one of the first um, full chapters that I I wrote. And I was so struck by the number of these gay travelers in particular who when when I would talk to them it wasn't ever stated that their main reason for traveling was because they were trying to spread goodwill toward you know toward gays and improved gay rights conditions you know for for local um people but it kept coming up over and over again where they'd say oh you know I just love to travel and and the the men are hot and I have such a great time but also like you know I think it's good for like people to see like gay travel and interact with gay foreigners and and you know as, as if they're you know stoic and and for me that really sidelines a lot of you know the the very important activism happening by gay rights groups in Brazil right mm-hmm. um are not at all dependent on you know gringos to show up and spread their gayness around or, or <laughs> you know to come be goodwill ambassadors and so there was there was something about this but i don't think it's very good scholarship to just sort of you know look at tourists and say oh well how dare you not be you know enlightened and academic about what it is you're doing and you know how dare you you know not conform to my you know <laughs> academic expectations um but Instead, I thought, well, there's something here that's interesting academically about the importance of gay rights rhetoric and the way that that has in our contemporary moment of gay marriage and homonormativity and increasing assimilationism and arguments of kind of as good as you or you would see arguments like – oh, well, gay marriage, you know, should be legal because it's good for the economy, right? Because gay people will buy flowers and cakes and whatever. And so, you know, therefore, um, we should have it and it should be included. Mm-hmm. And I, I find this neoliberal argument to be really specious. And yet one finds it in very progressive circles, right? That the these arguments for inclusion. But of course, what happens there is that you are making... Um, these these fundamental rights and inclusion and 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 tolerance uh, contingent upon you know people having 
money and capital yeah. to do things like go on vacation and um, you know hire expensive caterers and florists for their wedding. Mm-hmm. And so that was really problematic for me. But again, the issue here is not that I ever want to poke fun at the tourists um, or, or any of the people who were so kind to sit and share their experiences with me for, for hours, but I was very troubled by the question of rhetoric and the conflation of rights and consumerism. Mm-hmm. I think um, oh, it's, it's just so interesting. I th- if we go, to, actually, we'll go to the chapter following that, um, which looks sure. at the way that sexual tourism impacts the formation of um, transnational kinship systems. And you look mm-hmm. at the way that across continental divides, uh, we see these uh, these kinships forming in unconventional ways to um, the initial observer. And then we start to see the way in which that complex, effective relationship may not actually be as unconventional or confusing at at first sight. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can elaborate on the role that kinship plays in your research and the impacts you saw um, within that political economic realm, but also that sexual economic realm, how kinship tied into those relationships. Right. So I began to notice, um, you know, that, that there's kind of a, a Pygmalion fantasy to refer to the to the Greek myth, um, you know, of the of the sculptor whose you know whose whose sculpture comes to life. It's kind of the basis of like my fair lady, right? That um, that you can kind of make a, a rescue project out of of you know developing this paramour, right? And elevating them in society and introducing them to new experiences. And I began to see that a lot where, um, you know, Brazilian clients as well, but also gringos would find a guy that they really liked and then they would want to make a boyfriend out of him. They'd say, stop working in the sauna, I'll send you money, um, you know, I, I want to pay for your education or I want to help you you know, better yourself and improve yourself. And it really morphs into, you know, an actual relationship with real feelings um, that are very complicated. But at the same time, some some of these men are identifying as heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Some of them have wives and girlfriends. And so you end up with these very kind of um, strange looking transnational kinship arrangements where you've got a gringo who's, you know, um, hanging around this family and is giving money to the man's kids. Um, is paying for their education. You've got wives that are kind of turning a blind eye to this. You've got these really interesting things, which at first, you know, if you're part of the rising tide of right-wing evangelical Christians in Brazil who have now, you know, taken over the government, they look at something like this and say, look at this, you know, terrible, you know, influence of these gays and these foreigners and they're corrupting our kinship system. So what I try to do in that chapter is to do some historical work and to look at the patterns that um, poor people uh, in particular in Brazil have always used in kinship. They have always brought in um, uh, the figure of the godfather, for example, to um, be somebody who will advocate for and uplift um, their children. And that goes back to slave times when you wanted a white godparent because they might actually help to defend your child from, um, you know, the most nefarious um uh, aspects of society mm-hmm. or bring a court case, for example, or possibly even, you know, purchase um, or provide um, freedom. Um, but also women in Brazil have these long histories and, and there's been a lot of great anthropolo- uh, anthropological work 
um, on this, Donna Goldstein's book, for example, that really look at the ways that women have um, attached to this idea of like this older, wealthier, often whiter man that they like, you know, milk for money um, and, uh, you know, and, and kind of seduce and, and they find that to be very gentle and kind of incorporate him into their kinship. And so when I looked at this in that light, I said, this is not new at all. This is just men doing what you know, these, these Brazilian men doing what people, women in their family have been doing for generations. Mm -hmm. Um, the only thing remarkable here is that like straight men are now kind of taking a page, um, out of this. Uh, and so I, I was really interested in kind of taking these conventional notions of kinship, um, and, and just kind of standing them on their head and saying, what happens if we look at this with a queer lens, mm -hmm. um, in, instead, right? Mm -hmm. And as we get to the final chapter, which is titled Sex Pilgrims, Subjunctive Nostalgia, Roots Tourism and Queer Pil Pilgrimage in Bahia, it's quite striking how from the beginning to the end of the book, we have not only looked at this performativity of masculinity and race in the sexual economy, but we've touched on political economy, we've touched on religion, history, the way in which family systems have been created, recreated, challenged, um, all through the lens of these very intimate interviews and experiences of individuals. And this last chapter takes us in to quite a unique um, and almost small sphere. Um, and it's this idea that there is a somewhat um, recuperation that can be achieved through um, tourism and as it relates specifically to black spirituality in this chapter. And I would love if you could elaborate on your term subjunctive nostalgia and drawing back to earlier questions where you noted um, these almost neo-colonial aspects to the sexual tourist. And if you could also explain how the term the imperialist nostalgia also plays into this idea. Sure. So um, imperialist nostalgia um, comes from uh, Renato Rizaldo, who um, sometimes many years ago was was writing <laughs> very, very angrily. It's, it's a wonderful um, essay. Uh, about, you know, these ideas of, of things like he cites, uh, the gods must be crazy out of Africa. Um, out of Africa is a, a, a perfect example because you get these sort of white colonial figures, right? Who are there, but they're kind of benevolent. Um, you know, they're providing jobs and running the plantation and whatever. And they're like good friends to the natives. The natives used to be. Uh, before colonialism destroyed them, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> as, as, as if the, the, uh, agent of imperialism, right? As if the, the white heroes of those novels and films and so on are not actually participating in, <laughs> um, in the colonial domination, right? Mm -hmm. In question. And so you can certainly think of certain aspects of tourism and, and we see this pattern over and over again where a tourist destination becomes, you know, kind of the, the hot place where people want to go and then people go there and they complain that it's too touristy. 
and then they have to go, you know, somewhere else, right? So, um, again, Cuba comes to mind, but certainly, you know, you could think of that in, in any variety of, of areas. We could also think about other forms of imperialism if we wanted to think about gentrification, for example. Uh, you know, think of hipsters taking over the neighborhood and, uh, you know, then they complain when all the mom and pop you know, uh, restaurants close up and complain that it's, you know, getting to be too, you know, too mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's, it's that kind of cognitive dissonance, right, that drives imperialist nostalgia. So when I looked at um, uh, Salvador de Bahia, um, which is in the northeast of Brazil and is the capital of Afro-Brazilian culture, one sees uh, tourists coming just as the tourists come to other places in Brazil like Rio. And they are engaging in, you know, various tourist practices um, and and at the same time are, you know, fretting about whether something is too touristy or whether it's authentic enough. But a lot of these tourists are African-American um, tourists specifically, both straight and gay, um, not all there for, for sex. But I realized that a lot of these um, uh, gay men were there looking to engage in um, cultural um heritage tourism. They wanted to go to watch capoeira, which is a martial art form disguised as a dance that came up through slavery. Uh, It's a beautiful kind of form of resistance. Also, uh, candomblé, which is an Afro-Brazilian possession-based faith, um, similar to Santeria or voodoo or or some other traditions listeners might know, and um, which is also seen uh, in Brazil uh, as as being very gay-friendly. So a lot of these gay tourists in particular were very drawn to that because it was very affirming of them as both black and gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very interested in this, and I said, this is not imperialist nostalgia. There's something else here, but what's happening here is not... Um, you know, colonists getting nostalgic for some prior state of authenticity, but rather imagining some kind of what if scenario, some kind yeah. of situation of, you know, how do how how do they connect to this place, right? What if their ancestors, having been you know rent apart by by the horrors of slavery, what if they were put on this boat as opposed to that boat? What is their relationship to blackness in Bahia, and how can they kind of access that? And that I realized was much more kind of subjunctive was the term that I put on right to take the you know the the grammatical term um, because it expresses hope and um, you know conditionality and possibility. Um, and so I was very interested in that. But on the other hand, the the problem that I would run into when talking to Brazilians and specifically Afro-Brazilian um, uh, residents in Bahia is they would say these tourists are coming in with like a very U.S. centric notion of blackness. And we actually have our own terms and our own history mm-hmm. and our own thinking about it. And in fact, much to the chagrin of some of the tourists, um, using Brazilian standards um, and categories of race, some of them are classified as something other than black. And so some of the Afro-Brazilians would push back and say, what you're doing here is actually kind of a form of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And I, as a scholar, am certainly not going to come in and tell adjudicate this dispute and say who is black in what ways and to, you know, police what is or is not cultural appropriation. That is certainly not my my purpose in that chapter. What I wanted to do in that chapter, though, is say what's really interesting here is that if we look at this overlap where there are these tourists who are saying, 
sexuality is one form of experiencing this culture and they want to go there and they want to take in all these cultural things, but they also want to have romance. And so they would often in the informal economic way, it was much less about brothels and so on and much more about picking up one of these guys on the beach who's selling, you know, whatever tchotchkes on the beach. Um, And very often those men are sex workers make most of their money from not from the sale of whatever. That's just a way of making contact with potential clients on the gay beach. But then, you know, having this whole kind of experience that they feel is very authentic of hang out with this guy, go, you know, through the various neighborhoods, go take him, you know, out to eat. And then he'll also, you know, take you to look at capoeira and to, to experience candomblé. And that that is, um, very different in terms of sex tourism. Sex tourism has such a like pejorative connotation. Mm -hmm. And I said, actually, this is kind of a a pilgrimage, right? And it's an incorporation of sexuality into that pilgrimage. And as long as it's not being done in an exploitative way, um, then I think that there's something really interesting there to say, how can we think about um, the complexities of cultural heritage tourism and really value that these men are finding queerness and in their search for blackness, even though there are some elements that are sometimes troubling about asking these black Brazilian men's bodies to kind of stand in metonymically for Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that they are somehow expected to do some kind of symbolic work, right? That again, performative labor um, is is you know something to wrestle with. But certainly, my purpose there isn't to condemn it. But I think has been very little remarked upon because a lot of the sexual economies literature assumes that the tourists are always white. And yeah. in that particular case study, um, it was a minority that, that were white. There are Italians um, who go there in great numbers. Um, and, and, you know, in a longer book, it would have been really interesting to kind of compare um, because they're definitely up to very different things um, in terms yeah, right. of how they experience it. But for the African-American men, there was something really kind of powerful and poignant about the way they were taking notions of pilgrimage up into their their experiences of black diasporic, um, you know, ethnographic fantasy and lived reality. I think at the end of each chapter, as a reader, I just kept coming back to this um, re-envisioning of sex as something so much greater than than a commercial exchange here it is certainly a medium and a vehicle and a conversation for knowing not only more about um themselves but but about a place and and a space and a time and i suppose you said there if there was a longer book that it would have been fascinating to look um at the way that italians were engaging in um not only the sexual economy, but but the the cultural economy of Bahia. What, what is next for you in in your research? What are your upcoming projects? Yeah, so I am well into the next book. Uh, as I was wrapping up the the epilogue work on this one, um, in uh, I suppose it was about 2012 or so, uh, 2013. Um, it became clear that brazil you know was was uh hosting the world cup in 2014 and the olympics in 2016 and uh i began to see a lot of the on the heterosexual side i began to see a lot more raids by police of uh heterosexual venues i began to see um 
physical violence, rape and sexual assault um, happening in increased numbers in Brazil. And so essentially I, I switched over and started um, working on, on um, the heterosexual side of the equation, specifically around these big sporting events and looking at how um, – how under the guise very ironically of human rights and even of women's rights where these foreign groups a lot of evangelical christians a lot of anti-prostitution feminist groups um neoliberal business developers police and state you know security folks would say oh you know the journalists are coming the foreigners are coming this is a perfect opportunity to go in and take these blighted areas um that are historically red light areas and um you know close down these venues and make everything nice and gentrify them and, and build this up. Mm-hmm. And of course, what, what these well-intentioned, you know, saviors uh, don't realize is that telling the Brazilian military police to go and clear a red light district um, is, is not going to end in a positive situation for human rights. And in fact, you know, sometimes results in systematic rape and torture of, of the women. And so I began to work very closely with, um, uh, with uh, a lot of sex worker rights groups there and a lot of other researchers. But the next book is not going to be confined just to Brazil. It, that'll be a major part of it. But I also realized that this is something that was happening. It was a pervasive pattern at other hosts of the World Cup and the Olympics and these sort of mega sporting events. Okay. So the same pattern of having a lot of fear about sex trafficking um, in particular and of, around prostitution being used as a justification to take over a district um, and then there being bad results from that is something that has happened in South Africa, um, in London, and um, now I'm looking ahead to Russia and Qatar um, and other sites. And so I've, I've really been kind of on a whirlwind tour this last sabbatical, traveling to many, many different Fantastic. places looking at this. So we'll see. It'll be a few years before this book comes out, but um, but I'm well underway with it. And so I'm, I'm really excited, uh, even though it's a, it's, it's a bit more depressing um a book than than the last one in a lot of ways but um nonetheless that's that's where i'm headed uh and just had a a new uh article about this in glq um called evangelical ecstasy feminist fury if anybody is is interested in in reading some of the um initial work that i've done on this question of of um of uh, uh sex panics and its relationship to these big sporting events oh fantastic what a title well, Greg, thanks so much for sharing your book and insights with us today. It's really been fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you.